Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So, you don't have to answer this question out loud, but you can do it by nodding. I think I'll get nods both directions. If you had an opportunity to peer into the future, would you take advantage of it? Some of you are like, no, I don't want to know anything. I don't want to know when I'm going to die. I don't want to know anything. Others of you are like, no, I would love that opportunity. Well, people throughout history have wanted to know about the future. And so they have sought people out who apparently or allegedly know something about the future. And so people will seek out people like seers or prophets or mediums or fortune tellers or futurists, even seeking out religious leaders. All kinds of people who have claimed to know something about the future, and so people will seek them out so that that might help them for today. They want someone to prophesy about the future. Now, some of you said, no, I don't want to know about the future. I'm good. Just I want to live today. Well, imagine if back in October 1970, if you could see what Walmart stock is in 2022. Imagine if you had $5,000 on October of 1970, and you bought the, the IPO of Walmart, the initial public offering, at $16.50 a share, and someone told you, I can see into the future, you don't have to do anything with it, just leave it there, don't have to sell it, trade it, don't have to do anything else, don't have to buy anything else. In fact, you don't ever have to buy another stock again in the rest of your life, you don't have to invest, just, just do that. You say, oh, I don't know about that. Well, if had you done that, today you would have $65 million from that $5,000. Some of you maybe back uh, this summer, the Mega Millions was going on. Remember that? Got up to, what, $1.3 billion? And as that was happening, can you imagine if someone says, here's the numbers. Choose these numbers. To know the future. I want to remind us that God is a God of the future. God is a God of prophecy. God sees the future. In fact, you think about, hey, what's your testimony? Share your testimony. Well, what's the testimony of Jesus? Revelation chapter 19 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, when God says something will happen, it's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 46, God says, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. God knows the future. He sees the future. And whatever he wants will happen. And so Peter's exhortation to you and I, when it comes to prophecy, to the future, to the prophetic message, Peter said this in 2 Peter. He said, we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and that you and I would do well to pay attention to it. Peter said, pay attention to prophecy. Pay attention to the prophetic message in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, prophecy makes up 25% of Scripture. And so that is what we have been doing in our series through the book of Revelation. We've been paying attention and zeroing in on prophecy, on the prophetic word, on the future. Today, I, I, I'm doing a little bit of a pause on Revelation and taking us back. What I want to do is I want to help us understand the mindset of the Jewish person in the first century. What did they believe about the future? What did they believe about the prophecies, about the last days, about the end times? 
Because here's one of the reasons we want to do this today as we get ready to really get into the nitty-gritty of Revelation. Once you and I understand their view, their perspective, their understanding, you're going to have a better understanding of what God is trying to communicate to you and I through the book of Revelation. You're going to have a better understanding about the last days and the future, and you are going to completely understand the book of Revelation when I'm done today. Okay, probably not really, but you're going to understand a lot more, and it's going to make a lot more sense to you moving forward. And so the Jewish people in the days of Jesus, they were desperate to know the future. Again, I asked you, would you like to know the future if you could? And some of you are like, no, I don't think I want to know it. The Jewish people were desperate to know the future. And and they had their reasons. I mean, they were so tired of being oppressed and being under the thumb of other nations who were controlling them and ruling over them. And, And they longed to see their Messiah, who had been prophesied would come, who would make things right, who would overthrow the oppressors and establish the kingdom of Israel that would last forever. And so they studied the prophecies to understand what God promised their world and their life could be and should be. And so the Jewish people were filled with, you ready, big word here, eschatological anticipation. Everybody try to just shout that out, eschatological. Go ahead and say it. Exactly. Now, the Greek word eschatos means the last things, final. So eschatology is the study of the last things or the last days or the final days. And that's what the Jewish people of the first century did. They studied the last days, eschatology. And it was because of all of their experiences of what they had gone through You see, the Jewish people had experienced Assyrian oppression. It had taken away the 10 northern kingdoms. Uh, there There was 12 tribes, and the 10 tribes were taken away. They had experienced the Babylonians who had came in to the southern kingdom, the two remaining kingdoms, and took them away as captives as well. They had suffered under the Persians who ruled over them. They suffered under the Greeks who had ruled over them, and now, in the first century, who's ruling over them? You have the Romans. And as they read their scriptures, they anticipated an anointed king, a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior, who would come and reestablish the rule and reign of King David on earth. And so they went into their scriptures like Isaiah chapter 11 and Jeremiah chapter 23 and 30 and so many other passages that pointed to the future kingdom of freedom that they were longing for. So they have a sense of hope as they thought about the last days. And the question for you and I this morning is, do we have that same hope? As we look to the future, and things are pretty rough here on our planet right now in all sorts of different categories, do you have that sense of hope for the future? They hung on to passages like Isaiah chapter 9, saying that a a Messiah, their Messiah, their Christ, their Savior would come and the governments of the world, they would be upon his shoulders and he would rule and he would reign forever and ever. And so... 
when Jesus arrives on the scene, they knew from the teachings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, they knew, they had this clear eschatological, eschatos, end times, end times picture of the events that would occur in the last days. It was clear to them. And they not only had their holy scriptures, they also had non-biblical sources that they, that they turned to. Different books like the Book of Enoch, the Psalms of Solomon, the Assumption of Moses, the Book of Jubilees, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Fourth Book of Ezra, the Apocalypse of Baruch, and the Secrets of Enoch. These books contained information about eschatological things, about last days, about future things. German theologian Emil Schur wrote a five-volume work entitled The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ. And one of the topics that he writes about is what the first century Jewish person believed, and within that, what did they believe about the last days, about the end times? They had a belief of the last days that, that, that if you and I will understand their belief, that helps us understand the book of Revelation better. And by the way, for the most part, they got it right. They just didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. You and I have many more pieces to that puzzle of the last days. So what did the, a Jewish person in the first century believe about the last days? Well, the first thing they believed is that before the Messiah came, that there was going to be a period of terrible tribulation, of suffering for the people of God. There'd be a breakdown of morality in society, a time when decency and honor were turned upside down, when right was wrong and wrong was right. Now again, as we go through these, you're gonna, if you understand any prof prophecy or any parts of Revelation, you're going to hear, start hearing some things and go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that makes sense to some of the things I've, I know. But you're going to have that, and we're going to get that by the time we get to the end but we want to track through how they understood these last days. And so they believe before the Messiah, there's going to be tribulation. Next, they believe that into that tribulation, into that turmoil, a messenger would come proclaiming the soon arrival of the Messiah. That there's tribulation, and, a, uh, and they believe there would be this forerunner coming in the spirit of Elijah who, say, who would say the Messiah would come. And then after that, they believe that once that messenger comes and makes that proclamation, very shortly after, the Messiah would actually come. First, a time of tribulation that paved the way for somebody to come to say a Messiah is coming. Shortly after that, a Messiah would come. The next thing they saw in their eschatology, understanding last days, according to Schur, is that nations would come and gather and rally and, 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 and fight against the Messiah. The nations would come to Israel and Jerusalem and fight against God and his people. But in the midst of that effort to fight against God, God would wipe them out. And destroy them all. Again, this is the Jewish belief at the time of Jesus about the last things, last days, eschatos. They also believed that there would be a renovation of Jerusalem, that there would be a purification of the city, that there would be, ready for this, a new Jerusalem that would come. 
and establish this new kingdom. They also believe that Jewish people who had been scattered all throughout the world would be gathered back to the land of Israel. They would come back to the city of Jerusalem. And so they were looking for this Messiah who would come, who would defeat the nations, who would purify the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and he would gather Jews from all around the world and bring them back to the promised land. After that, they believed that Israel would then be the center of the world, so to speak, that the whole world would be subject to Israel, and the nations would come to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship the King, the Savior, the Messiah. And finally, with the Messiah King ruling over Jerusalem and really ruling over the world, it would usher in a new age of peace, prosperity, goodness, and glory that would last forever and ever. This is the viewpoint, the eschatological understanding of a first century Jew. Again, what was it in summary? They believed that there would be a time of tribulation, a time of trouble and difficulty. A messenger would come. He would announce that a Messiah is coming shortly. The Messiah then comes. And when the Messiah shows up, the nations of the world will come to battle against him. He will destroy them. He will purify the temple. He will purify the city of Jerusalem. You would have a new Jerusalem. And, and he would gather from the nations of the world, Jews from all around the world, who would come back to Israel as he establishes his earthly and eternal kingdom. That's the Jewish mindset, first century, as it pertains to the last days. Now, follow with me, if you will, this thinking of a first century Jewish person. From their point of view, they've been under oppression, right? They've been in tribulation for a long time. They had the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. They had heard about their great-grandparents who suffered under Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks who he came in and, 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 and had the abomination that causes desolation there in the temple. He desecrated the temple. And now, first century, they're suffering under the Romans. You see, first century Jewish person, they assumed they're in the tribulation. Then, some guy shows up on the scene, and he's preaching this message saying, the Messiah is coming. And people start hearing this and like, oh my goodness. And they look at this person and it's like, he's in the spirit of Elijah, and his name is John, and, and they call him the baptizer. And then he's talking about someone's coming, then all of a sudden he says, look, there he is the Messiah. And everybody looks, and who's he pointing to? He's pointing to a man named Jesus from Nazareth. And people start to get excited. John declares he is the Messiah. What does Jesus do after that? Jesus begins to perform miracles, doesn't he? He starts healing people, casting out demons, feeding people with a couple of pieces of fish and bread and feeding, feeding thousands upon thousands. He's doing miracle upon miracle. He's walking on water. He's telling the Sea of Galilee to be still. He's raising people from the dead. He's a miracle worker. And then Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, after doing his ministry for a couple years, a few years, he comes into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem at Passover. And what do the people do? 
They throw down palm branches and garments in front of him, paving the way because they conclude this is it. He's the Messiah. Because that's what you do when, when a king comes into town. You throw down the palm branches and the garments. Based on what I've shared with you thus far, if you remember back to the kind of the timeline there, what do they think's coming? What do they think's ha- going to happen next? When the Messiah comes, what are the nations of the world going to do? They're going to gather to Israel. So what are these people anticipating? War's coming, right? And they think, who's going out first? The Romans, our oppressors. That's the first person, people that, that this Messiah is going to take out. What else do they think is going to happen? They think, okay, he's going to purify the temple. He's going to cast out all the hypocrites and those who falsely worship. And in its place, they're going to establish a new Jerusalem where there will be true and proper worship. And they're believing he's going to gather Jews from all around the world to establish his new kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Sure, one little caveat, one little problem with this whole scenario. Jesus kept saying he was going to die. But be in their mindset. That doesn't make sense to them. They don't comprehend a, 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 a death, a crucifixion. It's not in their eschatological thinking. They certainly don't comprehend or understand a resurrection. They only see the coming glory of their king. Here's the key. The timeline events that they see, they see it all happening at once, once the Messiah shows up on the scene. Of course, you and I know, right? We understand in hindsight, we have the first coming of Jesus and we have the second coming. We know the events are split. Some of what we're talking about today happened at the first coming. Some happened at the second coming of Jesus. But they saw the Messiah and the last days and everything that occurs around that. They saw it all happening as one period of time. So they're thinking, everything's on schedule. We've been going through tribulation. We've seen the one in the spirit of Elijah come, John the baptizer. He proclaimed the Messiah's coming. He then pointed out who the Messiah is. Remember, even Peter said in Matthew 16, he said that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So, here's Jesus, who's been proclaimed as the Savior, entering the capital city. He seems to receive their hallelujahs and their triumphal praises. They think he's going to take on the Gentile world, that he's going to purify the temple, and he's going to gather the Jews and establish his eternal kingdom. He's on target. In fact, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And what did he do in Matthew chapter 21? He went to all the money changers, right? He turned over their tables. He laid into them. What's the Jewish person thinking? Oh, he's purifying. We have temple purification here. All of this, by the way, is probably what kept Judas hanging around for three years. Judas, someone who was motivated by greed and self-desire, Finally, all of this starts happening, and he's thinking to himself, man, three long years of walking around with this guy. Finally, the kingdom is, about, is here. I'm on the inside group, and I get to be a part of it. You and I, just kind of a pause, talking about Judas for a moment. You and I, 
if we really think about it, it's hard for us to understand how could Judas betray Jesus. He's on the inside group. He's one of the 12. He's seen everything. He's been part of private conversations. How in the world would he betray Jesus? Well, it's not hard to understand when you understand the Jewish mindset of last day's events. As I mentioned, the death of a Messiah, of their Savior, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus kept saying to them in the final days of his ministry, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Matthew chapter 20, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they're going to condemn him to death. And, he'll turn, and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. See, the Gentiles were part of the crucifixion. People who say, oh, it's just the Jews. He even tells us the Gentiles were part of it. We're all part of killing Jesus. And then he said on the third day he'll be raised to life, which they didn't comprehend. Jesus also said in Matthew 26, he said, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. A couple of year, uh, verses later, Jesus is right over the hills of, of, of Jerusalem, over the hill of, of the Mount of Olives, and he's in the village of Bethany. He's at Simon the leper's house, and while there, a woman comes in, and she takes expensive, costly perfume. She pours it on Jesus' head, and what does Jesus say? She said, he said, she's doing this right now to prepare me for burial. My guess is that moment right there was the last straw for Judas. Judas said, I can't take it anymore. He keeps talking about dying. Hold on. He's our Savior. He's the king. All the eschatological events, end times events, have been falling into place. Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. Judas can't take it anymore. So right after this woman pours the oil on Jesus' head, the next verse says this, Matthew 26, 14, one of the twelve, the one called Judas, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver, and he looked for the opportunity to hand them over. You see, Judas came to the point where he realized, oh, man, Jesus isn't who I thought he was. And I just wasted three years of my life. I need to get something out of this deal here. Because three years of my life, loss of income, you know what? He says he's going to die, fine, I'll help it along. Let me see what I can get out of it. They're like, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He's like, okay, that's a pretty good deal. I can, I can make that work. Just a theory of maybe why he, he did what he did. So what brings everything into focus for the disciples and really clues them in that we're in this moment? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to look at the last two verses of Matthew 23 along with the first three verses of Matthew 24. And we're going to see these verses... And I think as we start to put this all together, it's going to help us understand everything I've just talked to you about. Jesus had just spent the entire day at the temple. Much of that time was him going after these religious leaders and confronting them. Jesus' disciples are thinking, oh man, Jesus is purifying the temple, right? Now why do they think that? Well, I want you to listen to how Jesus pronounces judgment upon them 
at the end of this day that he had spent at the temple. Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. Jesus says this. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus just said, judgment is coming and you're going to see me again when I come in the name of the Lord. That phrase, he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a, that's a messianic, messianic uh, uh, language there. That's messianic acknowledgement. It's the exact same phrase back in Matthew 21 that all the people, when Jesus rode into town and they declared him to be the Messiah, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Same language, messianic understanding. So Jesus says, look, your house is left desolate. Next time you see me, (laughs) I'm coming, and we're going to get this thing rolling. I'm coming in glory. How do you and I understand that text? 2,000 years later, Christians, and we understand the scriptures, we see this verse through the lens of the crucifixion, don't we? So you and I read this, and we go, oh, we know what this means. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to ascend to heaven, and then one day he's going to return, his second coming. That's easy for you and I, but they had a different perspective. How would, Jesus, how would they have heard what Jesus said? Oh, we've been in the tribulation. Uh, the spirit of Elijah through John the baptizer has come, and he's declared the Messiah is coming, and then he pointed out who the Messiah is. The destruction of opposing nations is coming shortly. We're seeing Jesus purify the temple and purify Jerusalem. We're going to soon be gathering for this new kingdom. In other words, when they hear Jesus say, I'm going to renovate your house and then I'm going to come, they're thinking, sweet, Jesus is right on schedule. And after Jesus pronounces this judgment on the nation of Israel at the end of Matthew 23, The disciples, with eager anticipation, asked this question. Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. So they tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, they're thinking in this moment, the end has come. And implied in their word, when, is this. Today? Tomorrow? Thursday? Jesus, when are you going to finish this off? Is it going to be like this Friday maybe? So here's the question for you and I. Why did they all of a sudden ask that question? They've been with Jesus for three years. Why now? Why did they bring this up now after three years with Jesus? What happened in this moment that caused them to think, hey, what's the sign of your coming and that we're at the end of the age? What made this moment unique? What was the sign that caused them to piece it together? For them to say, oh man, this is it. It's what Jesus said right after Matthew 23, verses 38 and 39, the very next words he said, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Notice what he said to them. He said, okay, your house is left desolate. Next time you see me, I'll be coming in the name of the Lord. That's like Messiah language there. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples. Came up, when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
They're walking, track with me, they're walking out of the temple. Jesus had just said a few moments prior, your house is left desolate. Not my house. He used to call it my house. My house is a house of prayer. He used to call it a house, God's house. But now he's saying, no, no, this is your house. God's left. And then Jesus says, all these stones right here you see of this temple, it's all going to be tossed down. They're looking at this massive temple and, and, and this massive platform. The temple sat on a 36-acre platform, and, and it was more than one building. And it's surrounded by this massive wall. For example, some of the stones of that temple compound were 40 feet long, 10 feet high, 12 feet thick, 500 tons. Oh, not one stone will be left on another. And they're listening to this, and they're thinking to themselves, I don't understand what you're saying, but their eschatology tells them that this is it. And so Jesus is saying, it's all going to be torn down. Why? Because we're going to have the new Jerusalem, the new kingdom. It's time for renovation of the city. They don't know what you and I know, which is the temple is going to be torn down in 70 AD by, by Titus Vespasian, another topic for another time. But what are they thinking in this moment? Man, they're getting excited. Jerusalem, it's going to be renovated. This is it. The tribulation, we've been in it. We've been a part of it. The forerunner's here. He told us the Messiah is coming. He showed us who the Messiah is. The Messiah made his triumphal entry as we declared our hallelujahs and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now we're seeing the purification of the temple. Jesus even mentions complete renovation. Not one stone left on another. That's all in their minds. And as they leave that place, they leave the temple, they, they go out one of the gates. They cross, go down into the Kidron Valley. They walk up the Kidron Valley, up on the east side of the temple uh, where this Kidron Valley is, and they walk up the Mount of Olives, and they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, and they sit there, and I can picture, because this is the end of the day, and the sun is setting, and they're sitting there looking over the city, this huge temple with the gold glistening in the sky, in the, in the, with, the, with the sunset. You have these white limestone buildings. It's a beautiful picture. I can imagine it a little bit. We don't have the temple today, but I've been there with the Dome of the Rock kind of shining, and so I kind of have a little bit of a picture here, and some of you have seen that. And they're sitting there, and they're thinking, this is it. We're living in the greatest moment in the glory and the history of Israel. And so they say to Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 3, okay, Jesus, when is, this, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? I mean, they're pumped. I don't know if you can feel it. I've tried to help you get into this a little bit. But they're sitting there. And based on all the evidence that they had or like they thought they had, they're thinking, it's time to go to battle. I mean, he's telling them, I'm destroying the temple. I'm going to leave the city desolate. The next time we enter in, this is go time. I'm coming in the glory of the Lord. Don't forget, it's all one continuous event for them. It all happens at the same time. There's no gap in history. There's no crucifixion. And so they pose the question, when? It's questions. When and what? When and what? When? Is this going to happen? Today? Tomorrow? Friday? And what's the sign? Give us an indication. Is it, you know, is it, is it lightning? Is it darkness? Is there going to be a trumpet? What is it? And when is it? 
And then Jesus basically answers their question in Matthew 24 by saying, look, you haven't seen the end of the age, but I will show you what is the indication of my full coming, which you and I know as the second coming. And Jesus says, and I'll show you the signs of my second coming so that you can anticipate. He was speaking to you and I. You can anticipate when I am coming. Let me show you what does actually indicate the end of the age. And what Jesus talks about and what the Old Testament prophets talk about, what the Apostle Paul talks about and what the Apostle John in Revelation talks about That's what we are now going to get into the nitty-gritty in these next couple weeks. But we have to take the time today before we do that to give us the mindset, the context. Because when John writes Revelation, God shows John the same sequences of events that they believed would happen. In other words, they were pretty close to right on about what was going to happen at the end times at the last days. They just didn't have all the details. They just didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle like we have. God gives us those details. And he gives us the pieces to the puzzle. And so the upcoming chapters in the book of Revelation is essentially the following. At the last days, there will be a tribulation period. Daniel tells us it's going to be a seven-year period. It will be a time of great difficulty and trouble. In the midst of all that, there are going to, is there going to be a messenger, even messengers, who will come and announce that the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes and he shows up, the nations of the world are going to gather against him, but yet the Messiah is going to wipe them out and destroy them all. He's going to purify the temple. The temple will exist again. And he'll purify the city of Jerusalem. And he'll gather Jews from all around the world. And he'll establish his new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new earth. And that is the book of Revelation. See how simple it is? So for today, as we have that context going in, and all right, we understand now Revelation we're going to hold that with us through this series. I just ask you the question as we wrap it up, so what? So what, God? Well, God told you and I, Jesus told us, we're going to look into this in upcoming weeks. He told you and I, be ready. Be ready. We have the prophetic message, completely reliable. Paul talks about this blessed hope that we anticipate. Jesus talks about when you start seeing these signs, it'll be like labor pains. They're going to increase in frequency and intensity when you get to the end of the end. And I don't know about you, but I look around the world today and I just can't help but wonder, man, are we getting like towards the end of the end? Are, are, are we getting close? We've talked about a little bit of that and we're going to go into it more. I think God invites, I know God invites every single one of us to live in light of the fact that our Messiah will return at any moment to come for his church. And the question is, are you ready? Are you walking with Jesus? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Are you seeking to be holy and righteous 
He'll forgive you of your sins. Confess it to him. He's calling us to holiness, to purity. And I hope and pray as you begin to think about those these last days and what's coming, that we have this sense of, I want to be right with God. I want to be right with God. I want to give you that moment right now. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.